Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. I'm Sean, always joined by my backcountry partner, Mike. Uh, on today's show, we're going to be talking about patient transport in the wilderness. Uh, Mike's going to be leading us through that one. Uh, so with that, Mike, the floor is yours. So this is probably one of the most overlooked areas when it comes to wilderness medicine as opposed to uh, front country medicine. we got a bunch of cool tools uh, if you're riding a medic unit to get people out of their houses. Basically, we've got reeves, we've got stair chairs. The general goal is to get to their cot as soon as possible, or get them to the cot as soon as possible, and then use the the wizardry of manual or even better automatic lift cots to put them in the ambulance. And then it's just a matter of driving a vehicle to a hospital where we have big old bays and big old areas that uh, allow us to uh, safely unload the patient, bring them into the hospital, and have them treated. Unfortunately, in the woods, there's no roads. That can be a problem. So you have to approach patient transport a little bit different in the backcountry. We're going to go over a few different methodologies, but I want to lay out some simple principles here. You have to always maintain a, a mindset that the goal is to get the patient to definitive care. The goal is not always to maintain an absolute state of comfort for the patient. If you're familiar with what I keep referring to as front country medicine, that that concept's pretty easy to internalize when you're when you're thinking about a trauma patient, right? somebody that just got hit by a semi or, or somebody that was in a severe auto accident, you very quickly want to get them to the hospital to definitive care where they can do additional things like CT scans and x-rays and determine actual injuries that you can't see in the field. But in the backcountry, sometimes we forget that uh, the number one priority is to get them out of the woods, get them to definitive care. So with that in mind, uh, the number one thing is uh, walking. So it turns out that if you think about it, the fastest way to get somebody from point A to point B, barring mechanical tools, like we just mentioned, is for them to walk. There's a lot of pictures on the internet. You'll see a lot of imagery of people being carried in uh, what are called uh, Stokes baskets or uh, soft litters or something called a, uh, a sked. But the reality is that six or eight people carrying a human always takes longer than the human walking themselves. So it's always number one. Uh, it is not uncommon for us to hand a patient crutches and say, let's start crutching, uh, even with a dislocated ankle. Uh, if they have two working arms and one working leg, we're going to attempt to crutch before we attempt any other maneuvers because it's just simply the most efficient way to get them out of the backcountry into definitive care. Obviously, if you have upper extremity injuries, if you have a dislocated shoulder, if you have uh, dislocated elbows, broken arms... Uh, anything that is not a head injury or there's no altered mental state, but there's simply an extremity injury or or even I've walked people with rib fractures out of the woods before. You want to keep them moving because as long as they're walking, they're moving toward definitive care. The minute you stop and sit down and make plans to carry them, you have a bunch of other things you have to address, uh, both on the rescuer side and on the patient care side. Uh, additionally, if you know weather is coming, moving toward definitive care, or in some instances toward a more definitive structure is going to be uh, better than trying to battle the elements while trying to carry the patient. So you have to keep these things in mind. There's no hard and fast rule other than if they can walk, they should walk. At that point, it is much easier to provide 
supplemental and palliative care, water, food, energy, encouragement. Uh, hey, <laughs> listen, man, we've only got 17 miles to go, you know, one step at a time before you know it, we'll be there is a, uh, is probably the best way to get about. Now, what happens if you can't? What happens if the patient broke a leg or the patient has, you know, a lower extremity injury or their, their medical condition is of such that they are unable to be carried? This is really where we have, in a lot of places, this is where we have a decision matrix to make. Carrying somebody is a resource-intensive uh, activity. However, the only other alternative at that point is something mechanized. And if you can't get a UTV or a pickup truck or some sort of mechanized vehicle to the patient, then you either have to carry them out or you have to have them hoisted by a helicopter if that's available. More times than not, the cost and the danger associated with a helicopter is simply going to be outweighed or is going to outweigh the benefit as opposed to carrying the patient out of the backcountry. There's also a lot of places on the East Coast that hoisting somebody because of tree cover is simply not possible. So at a minimum, you're probably going to have to carry them a certain distance just to get them to a place where they can be hoisted. So oftentimes we're going to think of carrying the patient as the least preferred method to get them out of the woods, but oftentimes it's going to be our only method. At that point, you're, you need a lot more resources. Um, if you're able to keep a patient walking and, and they are in a medical state that allows them to walk out of the backcountry, you can treat them with two or three people, typically a primary care provider, a couple of assistants or a couple of personnel to assist, maybe somebody to hold their hand, help them walk. You can get them out of the woods. The minute you make the decision to carry somebody, you're tying up six people uh, at all times with a labor intensive activity. And those people can only carry for so long, especially if you're going uphill. You're looking at 18, 20 people uh, to carry somebody out of the woods. Depending on the distance, you may need to supplement that slightly, though. Once you get above about 20, 24 people, you're kind of hitting the max window on the number of people you can coordinate and manage on a on a trail at any given time. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, you hit that point of diminishing returns as far as resource people. It's, yeah, 50 people crowding the trail sometimes becomes a bigger right. burden than having 18 good responders. Yep. Uh, one of the resources I read was recommending as a planning factor, six people per mile of travel. So, you know, if you had to travel three miles, they're looking at, you should have at least 18 responders available just to rotate people through and provide some of those additional things. But I would argue that you could quickly get to a, a big number, depending on where you're at and how far you had to go with some of those, that if you were in a more desert environment something that doesn't have is some extreme terrain or really rough trails to work through, you could do it with a far less number of people because you're not putting so much strain on the folks trying to carry somebody over all of that than if they're just steadying a basket on a wheel and guiding it down. A yeah, and I think it's probably reasonable to say that the environment we work in in the, the mid-Atlantic here is probably some of the worst terrain to get somebody out. Uh, I've never seen a trail that doesn't have rocks and roots. Every <laughs> every aspect of a, rot and a, a rock and a root is just another obstacle to be navigated. Um, there are techniques where people make shoulder slings and such to carry the basket. At the end of the day, my personal opinion, uh, nothing beats having a wheel on the Stokes and using all of that as supplemental technique, uh, you simply, a standard, even 150 pound human over three or four miles, even if you're using shoulder slings, it's just not an efficient way to move somebody and keep them relatively stable. Well, and one of the things you got to consider is using like the shoulder sling technique vice uh, Stokes with a wheel, like we usually use is for us, our trails are narrow. You're not fitting, you know, you don't have a 10 foot wide trail that you can fit essentially rescuer, basket rescuer, all, you know, three individuals abreast comfortably across a the trail. There's a lot of times when we end up with just two people on the basket steadying it as we're crossing through a lot of these narrower areas. Yep. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a great technique, but again, it's, it's applicable to certain environments. 
And you've got to be able to have places that support that. And it's like, oh, I learned this new technique. And it's like, it's cool, but the trail is only three foot wide yeah. here. So you're getting, you know, one or two extra rescuers on the basket besides those that are yep. headed And you have foot. to be able to, we use the term come off the basket. You have to be able to quickly separate yourself from the basket to keep the basket in motion where you may need to go around a tree or navigate a, an edge on the trail where you simply can't have two people next to the basket plus the basket itself. All of this leads to the key principle that using a Stokes to extricate a patient is simply slow. I'm also, this isn't really applicable to, to horizontal gram transport, but I am not a huge advocate of any sort of vertical work with a basket at all. They're clunky. They're hard to navigate. They're hard to maneuver. There's there's better tools out there. We'll probably do another podcast on that in the future. However, once you get to a flat travel area where the terrain needs to be navigated horizontally and you need to take the person from point A to point B, nothing is going to beat a Stokes and a wheel, at least not with today's technology. Yeah. The only thing that's beating that is another, an actual mechanized yep. The only vehicle. thing beyond that is a UTV or, or a, an ATV with one of those Stokes trailers, uh, but even then, mm -hmm. that may yeah. not be in the best interest of your patient. Uh, and we'll we'll circle back to that. But it's uh, it's not always in the best interest of the patient to put them on a mechanized vehicle that's rocking them back and forth and bouncing down the road either. So Yeah, no, because, I mean, realistically, they can only go so fast as well. Yeah, because bouncing that patient's yep. not a good So thing. at the end of the day, if you can walk them, walk them. If you can't walk them, you're probably going to carry them. Ultimately, the final answer for severely injured people or places where it makes sense and it's not too dangerous is to hoist them using a helicopter. This is probably by far everyone's favorite, right? You go in, you play hero, you you get to play the rescue theme song, you get to do some Rocky on the hill, and then the patient's gone, and then you just pick up your stuff and you hike back out. The problem is that helicopters, one, they're not supposed to stay in the air, right? They're just, it's, it's, it's a violation of physics. But in general, being under a hovering helicopter, there is a risk property there that has to be addressed. You simply have to decide that the patient's life, we use the term life, limb, or excuse me, life, limb, or consciousness. Is that the right phrase? What's the right phrase? Yeah, I think it's pretty much the life or limb piece. You know, if, if you're either A, going to die because traditional evacuation methods are going to take too long, or there's a risk of you losing a limb because, again, it's going to take too long. Or you have an altered level then, of consciousness, yeah. uh, i.e. you, you, you yeah. bounced your head off yeah, a exactly. rock and you're unconscious and you've got snoring respirations. Hey, that's a problem. It may be something we can manage. It may not be something we can manage, but we don't have the tools to determine the proper course of management in the backcountry. And so we need to get you to a facility that can take a peek inside your, your skull. So barring those three things we're typically going to carry, if you're going to use a helicopter, it's not something that you just decide to do lightly. There are some systems, and I'm, I'm not placing any judgment on these systems, but there are some systems that uh, will bias toward a helicopter in the interest of resource management. So it's hard to get 20 people together to evacuate the patient. So they just choose to hoist. That can be a pro if it's going to take 12 hours to get those resources there. Uh, it could be a detriment if it turns out that the patient really didn't need it or it was just a time saver. So these are all things that your agency, your SOPs need to determine. Helicopters are not cheap to operate. They're they are a uh, they are a resource and they're a great resource, especially when you get into hoisting and short hauling. Hoisting is when you use a mechanical winch to lift the patient into the helicopter. Short hauling is when there's a cable attached to the bottom of the helicopter and the rescuer is brought in, typically dropped off, package the patient, and then they're lifted again using that cable and they take a ride for the duration of the trip hanging from the underbelly of the helicopter. There's there's dangers in that, right? And you have to weigh that against the needs of the patient. So let's talk about the patient. Let's talk about considerations for the patient. First off, right out of the gate, you have to be able to regularly evaluate your patient. It's really easy to lose sight of what I'll call pretty standard EMS principles of measuring blood pressures on a regular basis, measuring pulse rates on a regular basis, talking to the patient, evaluating respiratory drive. 
I don't think anybody actually sits in an ambulance, counts respirations every two minutes. I happen to use capnography for that quite a bit. It's a very useful tool when you want to measure respiratory rates. If you have it in the backcountry, I'm not saying don't use it. There isn't a good way to do it without a cardiac monitor and a and a nasal cannula sort of capnography tool. There is something out there called an EMMA, which is a pretty nice capno, uh, capnography tool, but it's really only an inline tool to be used on airway adjuncts or possibly on a, on a mask. Uh, and nobody wants to be wearing a mask just to have their respirations measured while they're conscious and alert. So you need to talk to your patient. You need to kind of be evaluating things. You need to be able to measure their pulse oximetry. Blood pressure is at a pretty steady pace, especially if you're giving medications. If you're giving medications, you need to be measuring blood pressures. I haven't, I've, I've spent a lot of money trying to find an ideal wireless blue, uh, blood pressure cuff. If somebody out there knows of one, that is of what I'll call above a commercial grade, but not quite hospital grade wireless blood pressure cuff that I can fit in a backpack and it can come along with all my kit, let me know. Uh, I've played with a lot of them that attach to my phone, and they don't work that well in the backcountry once they get cold or they get wet. But if you're giving medications, you need to be able to measure vital. You also have to keep in mind that this is not an experience that the patient really enjoys. If you have the opportunity to get into a basket and actually be tied into the basket and, and participate in training as a patient, you're going to find out real quickly that your world shrinks real fast. Uh, you're laid out, tied down to a metal basket. You can't really sit up. You can't uh, can't really stretch. Your you're at the mercy of the angle of the basket. So if the, if the rescuing team is not keeping you feet down, head up, as it were, uh, you can quickly have blood rush to your head. You can end up with just a lot of discomfort. <laughs> it's it's not fun, and all you can see is the sky for the most part. It's really hard to look around. So all you see is the the upper torso portion of the rescuers carrying you out of the woods and a bunch of people talking over you. It's scary. So keep in mind that one. It's not an efficient time-wise method to get the patient out of the woods, and it's scary for them. Uh, you need to maintain access to be able to get vital signs, pulse oximetry, blood pressure, as we mentioned, and just general uh, conversation with the patient. You need to be able to talk to them. That means that you need to be part of or right next to the crew in an already space-constrained environment, and you need to be able to constantly evaluating your patient's state. Uh, in addition, they're going in a helicopter. They need ear protection. They need eye protection. They're probably going to need a helmet. If there's any sort of opportunity for the basket to take a significant fall, now we have ropes and we have uh, fall protection. There's a lot of things that come into play. In addition, the environment. We can't ever forget the environment in the backcountry. So your patient is now off the ground, but if you haven't properly padded underneath them, you've now got a thermal problem wherein they're losing heat through the bottom of the basket. Uh, if you're not keeping them dry, if you're not covering them appropriately, and it's chilly out, even 70 degree weather, people can become hypothermic just laying in a basket. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things that most rescuers fail to recognize is the patient's comfort level is significantly different than the airs. As a rescuer, if you're especially if you're part of the carry team, you're huffing and puffing and you're sweating along and you can't believe your patient is shivering and you don't know why. Yeah, because it's like, oh, it's this lovely 65, 70 degrees out. But that patient is laying still, generating zero body heat, right? Shivering is the only mechanism they have to make body heat, and we don't want our patients shivering in a basket for three or four hours. So proper insulation is finally important. I generally go with the mantra of like, strap them in there, insulate all the way up, and if they start complaining that they're sweating inside that thing, okay, cool. Now yeah. we can make some adjustments. But if you're not at the point where they feel too warm, then you haven't packaged enough. Yeah, and I have, I have yet to meet a patient that, well, that's not true. I have yet to meet a patient where I had enough packaging material for everything we had to do, regardless of the weather. 
And it's worth note that the minute that there's an opportunity for precipitation, uh, you need to be properly, properly securing moisture protection around the patient. And then you need to constantly be reevaluating that because if they're, if they're wrapped up to keep the rain off of them, they're also retaining a bunch of moisture inside of their packaging. And if they are sweating, if they are uh, producing a lot of heat or just from some medication administration that causes them to have a an atypical pesophysiological response, they're going to end up sweating inside there anyway and getting cold. So you have to always keep in mind that uh, protective layers and warming are of the utmost importance, even in the summer. And then there's all the, the I'll call it uh, nursing skills, uh, food, water, body waste. If you're going to be at a basket for 10 hours, and it's not uncommon for us to be with patients for 10 hours, eventually, if you're putting water in, water is going to come out. It's just kind of the nature of how humans work. Yes, I see. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, you can only put so much in before yep. something's got to come out. Um, so you have to you have to keep in mind that you have to have a plan for that. I'm not going to say that we, we're going to stop every 20 minutes to let the patient urinate, but you have to keep that in mind, especially, uh, and there's no hard and fast rule here, but if you're hanging bags and dumping fluid into a patient, in the front country, it's pretty easy to forget that by the time they get to the hospital, if you put 500 mils of fluid into somebody and then leave that bag hanging with a KVO drip, there's going to be quite a bit of fluid in there. If their kidneys are functioning properly, they're going to have to urinate at the hospital within 30, 40 minutes of arrival. You don't have that opportunity in the back country all the time. You know, there's no special technique, uh, urinals or depending on the nature of the injury, like go ahead and let it go. Uh, we're just going to have to deal with that later. That's a common answer. Right, but then once again, if your patient has urinated inside the Stokes, now you have a moisture problem inside the Stokes. I'm a big fan of chucks in the basket if it's available, but uh, there's no right answer. It's just something you have to address. There's no good simple solution to the problem. It's just a problem that has to be dealt with. Additionally, and this this gets lost a lot, so we're we're gonna harp on this a little bit. Patient comfort, um, not only comfort from a physical sense, but comfort in the situation they're in. As I mentioned earlier, it's scary. It's it's not it's not a joyride to be put in a basket and carried for nine hours. You should be talking to your patient all the time. I think sometimes rescuers, especially rescuers that have been on a rescue for eight or nine hours, and, and it's not uncommon to have teams that, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. And you start talking about how are the kids and how's the family and all those things. And you start talking over the patient as opposed to to the patient. That can lead to a sense of dismissiveness. And it's not intentional. I don't think anybody is intentionally dismissive of their patient. It just happens. I don't think I've been doing this a while and I don't think it's ever, it's ever been, I've never seen it happen in a malicious manner, but it's hard work. Carrying somebody is hard work. It's hard work to get them out of the woods. And it's real easy to end up talking with your friends and joking, maybe sometimes inappropriately, uh, over the top of the patient and treating the patient as a thing you have to do as opposed to a person having a bad day. So keep that in mind. Interaction with the patient is always important. And positive interaction with the patient is of, of the utmost importance. You do not want to forget that there's a patient in the basket. You do not want to forget that everything you're saying can be heard by the patient. And you want to maintain a professional canter. And you want to, you, you want to make sure that the patient walks away thinking, wow, those professionals really came in and helped me out. As opposed to, wow, those guys made some really inappropriate jokes over the top of me while I was stuck tied to this metal basket unable to move, urinating on myself for this miserable ride down the mountain. And and Mike says that because we've actually had that experience yes. with a patient yep. who uh, let us know later when we got to the ambulance that there are a couple of folks that were making some very strange comments that made her uncomfortable. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you can never forget you have a patient there yet. It, people tend to just start talking and having strange conversations and forgetting that there's a human that's three feet from them at arm's distance 
and his listening to all of it because they have nothing else to do. Yep. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're along for the ride. You can't exactly strap a podcast on them and say, okay, just ignore the next seven hours. They're, uh, I mean, unless it's this podcast, then they should totally be listening to all of the wonders of the magic. But, but then they might be disappointed in what they're receiving. True. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing it's not, not the glory of the Sean and Mike show. Um, but you should always be cognizant that there's a patient in the basket and you should maintain that professional tenor. Probably the most common thing I see sometimes is people's disgruntledness with the system or, you know, I don't think it's for anybody that works in the fire rescue community. I don't think there's, there's going to be any shocker here when I say sometimes firefighters tend to complain about things. The, the reality is you're welcome to complain all you want. Just don't do it in your shot of the patient. All right. So we've talked about taking care of the patient. Let's remember, and this is a common thing I see in the back country more so than I see in the front country. In the front country, we have what I'll call a pretty standard pecking order. Uh, the system I operate in in the in the traditional fire rescue community, right? The the attendant in charge from the ambulance is technically making decisions for patient care. Everyone else there is supporting their efforts. Decision that is made. There, there's a pretty good unwritten rule within fire EMS that uh, you don't have to agree with the paramedic that's taking care of the patient. But unless it's it's uh, going to jeopardize the patient's health or cause an imminent injury, you probably don't just open your mouth and start arguing. With in a fire rescue scenario, if there's an engine company and an ambulance and maybe, a, you know, an EMS supervisor and some other folks there, there aren't 15 people uh, providing their input. However, for some reason in the backcountry, that happens. Everyone's right there together for a long time. We have to keep in mind that there is still a provider in charge. There's a PIC. That PIC is making the ultimate decisions for patient care. You, you should not in any way feel that you can't talk to them about decisions made for the patient's care, make recommendations or suggestions that you think are important. But again, try to do that outside of your shot of the patient. You don't want to give the patient the impression that they're uh, they're just a tool or they're just a, a problem that has to be solved for. You need to constantly advocate for the patient. You need to constantly remind everyone that uh, there are particular injuries. Is it the left foot or the right foot? It's hard to see when they're in a Stokes, right? Once they're wrapped up, it's... Uh, it's not always easy to tell what the injuries are. I haven't found a good way of doing this other than making a sign and tacking it to the patient, but I don't know that that would really work either. You just have to remind people, hey, when you're grabbing the basket over there on the right side, like his ankle is angulated and not in the right place, like be careful of the foot. It's <laughs> There's no good answer for it. I don't have a good solution. I wish I did. But at the end of the day, it is inevitable that when 18 to 20 people who might not have seen each other for a while have an arduous task in front of them that it's very easy to slip into. This is just work and I need to do whatever I can mentally to tolerate the level of work that I have to do. And it's very easy to forget that there's a person with an injury that needs care in that basket. So just keep that in mind. One thing I would throw in with that is, is, is that gets worse the longer the rescue goes on. So for the first 30 minutes to an hour, most people are very attentive. When you're coming to an obstacle, they're lifting that basket up. They're doing their best to keep it steady. But once you hit hours two, three, four, five plus, and it's the same rescuers continuing to rotate through, when we say the same rescuers, we mean if you have 20 people out there, chances are, and most people who are in this line of work have found that there's going to be 15 or 16 rescuers always on that basket. And there's going to be this mysterious 10% that never seem to find their way onto it. So as folks get more and more fatigued, that basket doesn't come up over obstacles high and it starts bouncing up and down. And they start kind of treating it less carefully than they need to. And then when your patient starts yelling, ow, every time that broken leg gets bounced over a rock or they're now walking basically head down for the last 20 minutes, you got to, you really got to get on the folks carrying that basket to, you know, Hey, we got to get it up. You got to pick it up. You can't just kind of 
half-ass this here because it's starting to hurt the patient. And, you know, if, if you're considered about a head injury and you've keeping that basket tilted down and you're letting intracranial pressure build up, that's not a good thing either. So you've really got to just keep on people and try to keep the morale up of the team as well and just remind them that you have a patient. Hey, let's go easy on these bumps. Don't forget, you know, every time you do that, you cause pain and we don't want that. Yeah, and to put it in perspective, um, so a lot of a lot of systems in this country work 12-hour shifts. And if you're at a busy station, right, there's, there's some stations I know of, some rescue stations in the mid-Atlantic that run 20, 25, 30 calls per truck a day, and there's two or three trucks in the station. You're turning and burning and, and doing work. But there is still – there's always a, a, a break between the hospital getting in the truck and running the next call. I guess a, a better analogy would be slinging hose, right? Uh, if you, you're on a fire scene, you're maybe working hard for 20 minutes and you get rotated. Backcountry rescue requires a monotonous level of consistent output for the duration of the rescue. Uh, you can always stop and take breaks. Uh, but breaks just get you further from the ultimate, well, not further from, but they aren't moving you toward the ultimate end goal of getting the patient to definitive care. So a lot of teams are, are, I'll call it stingy with their breaks. They're careful to not take too many breaks. Um, yeah, that's, well, that is Sean's team. But the goal is to get the patient to definitive care. And the longer we take to get there, the longer it takes for them to get to the appropriate center that provides the appropriate level of care they require. It's just arduous work. And arduous work leads to mental fatigue. And mental fatigue leads to cutting corners. And that's, I'm not placing blame at all. It's just the nature of the work. It's the nature of what happens. This is not easy. Um, some people get into it because they want to help people. Some people get into it because they like the challenge. Whatever your reason for doing the work, you have to internalize the fact that this is going to be long, arduous times. And you just have to kind of put that in the back of your mind and understand that it's going to be work. Anything else on, on extrication, Sean? I would say generally no. You've covered all the big ones. You know, and The biggest piece is don't forget that is a person, that is a patient in that basket. Whether you're the primary provider, you're just someone who's providing assistance on the rescue. And I would say one of the biggest things you can do is volunteer to be the patient on a training exercise. Yeah. Be in that basket and get that perspective. Know what it's like to be carried. Uh, know what it's like if you're doing tech rescue work, what it's like to be in that, that vertical environment. People kind of see that work as the cool, awesome hero looking part of the of austere and wilderness medicine. Some people aren't comfortable themselves on rope and harness. Imagine if you're a patient who's injured and you're now strapped into a, a little, you know, two foot by six foot aluminum skeleton frame of something and now being hoisted vertically up or down something where you have zero control. You can't see what's going on. You know, that's it. That's a crazy spooky position to be in for a patient who's never, ever been in that place before. And so if you get a chance as a provider to be that, we'll call it the training mannequin for the Do day. It. Do it. Get that experience. You have a better perspective of what it's like for yep. your patients. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. There's a couple other things I want to mention, uh, particularly toward ALS in the backcountry. And uh, uh, really when it comes to medication administration and advocating for your patient, it is not uncommon to work in a wilderness system that gives you much more latitude over uh, dosage over time than you would run into in a traditional front country environment. If you're doing a handoff of a patient to a helicopter team or to a ground transport team, you really have to advocate for your patient and make sure that the documentation is up to par, that you've kept track of all your medication administrations, and you have timeframes 
and all of it. Uh, I also like to provide the basis of how I got to the decision for it real quick. Not because I think anyone is doing anything malicious, but in my experience, sometimes when you say to a, to a ground transport crew, hey, this patient has had six doses of ketamine and three doses of fentanyl, yeah, it so just doesn't compute for yeah, a crew that, that is not accustomed to being with a patient for more than 30 or 40 minutes. And they, they have a hard time processing that, but you have to make sure that that information gets conveyed from you to the providers and then from the providers to the hospital so that they understand the amount and the, the volume of medication that's been administered to your patient over time. I usually always write it down. I, usually and always are two different things. I always write it down and I always start my reports to the transferring agency with, I've been with this patient for a number of hours. I lay out this, the aspect that this started 13 hours ago. I've been with the patient for 11 hours and they've received the following medications at the following times over those 11 hours. It helps build that mental picture for them that this wasn't a, you know, bop into grandma's house. Uh, she's having a little chest pain. I, I tossed some nitro and some, some aspirin in her. Got rolling with a little morphine, which took her to the hospital. Or, you know, Timmy broke his leg on a job site. He got some fentanyl, maybe a second dose on the way to the hospital to keep him comfortable. And we dropped him off. You, you could be with your patients for 12, 13 hours. And you're managing that the entire time. And that's just not a normal, I don't want to say normal. That's not a common amount of medication over an amount of time that a provider is going to be comfortable with unless you clearly lay out the timing, the time frame, and the dosages administered over what period of time uh, for your patient. You also have to keep in mind, for those of us with a higher level of care out there, if you administered medications that are not in the scope of the receiving facility or the receiving agency, you may end up riding that patient all the way to the hospital. Uh, or in, in some rare cases, if you're using things like, like uh, pumps for medication administration, because of the duration of time you're with the patient, you're just going with them unless you're going to get your pump back later and the system that is picking up your patient is comfortable with it or they choose to DC the pump right there and manage the patient under their protocols. But again, all of that is, it's an atypical thing that we would not have occur in a normal front country setting because of the duration of time we're with the patient. Yeah. And with that, you got to remember turning over, doing a face-to-face -face transition with another, you know, traditional ground ambulance crew is one thing, but you got to think like if I hoist a patient, there's no chance for you to do a face-to-face, -face, generally speaking, with the paramedic that's going to be inside that helicopter, right? And so that's when you got to go old school, like mom pinning a note to your jacket and sending you off to school. You have to essentially put a copy of your patient care report, it's all your field notes. You have to put those in there with the patient. So that when they get it, you can't just, you know, over the radio say, yeah, and they've had 500 micrograms of fentanyl. So that paramedic back there is like, holy crap, what did they do to this person? It's hard to articulate the full timeline of, yeah, but it's been over 12 hours. So you have to provide that documentation, even with your patients that you're hoisting. And even then, that's probably when it's most important, just because you don't get that face-to-face yep. -face yep. time. So you have to have a means to have all that documented, have a copy for yourself, and then send a copy with all that pertinent information with your patient. Because they're also going to want that at the receiving hospital, not just that flight crew that you're you're getting them to via a hoist. But when they turn them over to a, a receiving facility, some doctor's going to be like, wait, how much fentanyl has this person had or how much ketamine? Yeah. You know, then it's like at least that, that paramedic now has a backstory of, hey, these guys were in the care of some wilderness providers. They were with them for like 12 hours, 16 hours, whatever it is. And this is what they got over time. And this is their dosing and everything else. Then everybody goes, oh, okay, well, that makes more sense. Cool. Now they have a starting point and they know what you gave, why you gave it. And then they know what's appropriate to give at that point from their right. point of care. And, and 
I'm not going to say that we're, we're just dumping massive dosages of medications into people, right? Even in the pre-hospital setting, we're usually not giving massive doses of most medications. Um, but when you multiply that over time, it can sound like a lot unless you give a clear, clear story to the handoff team. A couple other things we want to mention. Traditional helms, right? If, if the helicopter's landing and taking on the patient, it's just like any other handoff. That doesn't get different. It's just that you have to be sure to tell your story appropriately. Other vehicles. So let's talk about other vehicles because there's probably somebody going, well, I'll just throw them in a UTV or I'll just throw them in a pickup truck and, and take them out of there. And we do that too. I don't love the bed of a pickup truck uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's windy and it's loud and I don't like it. But if you have to do it, it's a common thing done in certain parts of the country. You have to keep in mind that one misstep by the driver and everybody there is getting pretty badly hurt. So if you're going to use the back of a pickup for whatever reason, uh, just be aware that there are some inherent dangers in doing that. Uh, same thing with putting somebody in the back of an SUV or the back of a car. Nobody is really well secured. And if they're pretty critical, you've, you've got to keep in mind that you need to maintain access to the tools, blood pressures, et cetera, to keep an eye on your patient. Uh, UTVs are used pretty commonly. I'm not opposed to them. We could probably do a whole course on it. But the big thing to keep in mind, especially with these side-by-sides, your patient is sitting at a high, high point above the axle in the back of those things. Every roll and yaw is felt by the patient pretty severely. It's also felt by the providers if there's somebody sitting in the back with them. Take it easy. Take it slow. They are not an end-all be-all. Uh, we're not desert racing here. Patients, th there isn't a whole lot of comfort for a patient when they're in a basket strapped to the back of a UTV. You just take it easy. Some places use horses. Uh, I've never done it. I know it's a technique. Don't have any opinion on it. Uh, I'm vehemently against horses for vertical rescue, for, for providing energy to a haul system. But uh, I'm also vehemently against using things like winches in a vertical haul system because of the potential to break equipment. But if horses are something you guys use or mules or donkeys, you know, I'm not saying don't do it. Just keep in mind that it's uncomfortable just like being carried out. It's uncomfortable to be on the back of a horse, broken leg, or broken arm. For a period of time. A couple other tips. It is a good idea, if at all possible, to designate a rescue leader that is separate from the EMS care provider. Uh, the rescue leader's job is to make sure that people are fed, watered, that we're rotating people on a regular basis, that we're taking care of the, the all of the ancillary duties, requesting more resources, requesting supplies be brought in, basically managing the overall scene. This is somewhat analogous to like an engine officer at an entrapment if if you do front country EMS. You're, typically, your medical care providers that are caring for the critically injured patients are not the ones making decisions about all of the ancillary tasks and jobs that have to be done around the process of rescuing the individual. Same thing applies in the back country. If you can have somebody that is not the primary EMS provider managing all of those duties, that frees up the primary EMS provider and potentially their partner to simply care for the critically injured patient and do that job. Uh, the primary care provider should not also be calling in helicopters, vectoring in helicopters, talking on the radio, managing additional resources, calling for additional things. There should be a point of contact for your EMS providers to say, hey, I need X. And that's up to the scene manager or the, the coordinator to take care of those things. Yeah. Sean, anything on, on separating the duties? No, and I think that's it's a good thing, right? Yeah. So you need to have, you know, your primary provider is your primary provider and they need to be with the patient essentially as much as they possibly can. That's their focus. If you have to pull me away to set up a rope system, then who am I leaving my patient to? Even if it's a fairly minor, you know, a ankle that's been broken or a dislocated knee or something else that's, you know, it's benign and they're not requiring like sedation or crazy advanced life support stuff, even in the back country. 
sometimes like, all right, Betty, I've, I've got to leave you here with uh, this is Rescue Johnny, and he's going to hang out with you for the next 45 minutes while I go set up this whole rope system for us to do some crazy stuff with you. You know, if that's all you've got, and I'm the senior guy that can do all of the things, it is what it is. But if you can establish, you know, the rescue leader, if you will, like as Mike has put it, that's their job. Let them worry about that. You know, you just need to have the patient and be your patient's advocate and be prepared to provide support. And if you have the separation of duties, it's perfect. What you got to remember, though, is those two guys got to work together, uh, especially if the rescue leader is coordinating maybe a hoist. Say, like, hey, the helicopter is going to be overhead in 10 minutes. This patient must be yeah. ready to go. You as a provider might be able to push that timeline a little bit, but you've got to remember that that air crew might only have a certain amount of time they can be overhead before they've got to fly back and get more fuel, et cetera. So if there's certain timelines that have to be met, then you've got to really work to meet those timelines because it's really going to work out best for your patient. You know, if you've got the resources and you have a helicopter that's going to come in and hoist them and they're going to be there in 10 minutes, they're going to be there in 10 minutes and they're going to be expecting a patient ready to be hoisted because they've only got so long to be overhead and on station before they have to leave. And if you don't know, like uh, the, the most dangerous time in a helicopter is when it's sitting, hovering over a, it, it's extremely hard on a helicopter to hover. It is mechanically uh, taxing on a helicopter to hover in a stationary position. So the longer they hover, the harder it is on the helicopter. So the shortest amount of time that they have to hover the best. Yeah, exactly. And then ground considerations, right? So if you have to set up rope systems, and I have to pause the movement of the patient for an hour while you set up some extravagant rope system where we could have just adjusted our path 500 yards to the left and not had to worry about that, then why did we take this more difficult route? You know, I've, I've met some rescuers who love their tech rescue and their vertical work and want to do it and will almost find a reason to do it. If there's not a reason to do it, please don't do it. It's again, you're putting yourself, your crew, and your patient at a risk that might not be necessary. If you can find a better alternate route that might need a simple single rope system just as a safety tether, just in case somebody should take a fall, then use that one. Don't go with for the full vertical lift, right? So those two elements have to work together. They have to be both experienced people at the jobs they're doing. You don't want to just throw somebody, hey, you're going to be the rescue coordinator for this. Go for it. And it's their very first SAR evolution that right. ever worked. So you got to work it together. You got to think about what's best for your patient, what's best for the team overall, and how to best provide that evacuation to get your patient to the definitive care they need. Absolutely. So wrapping up, first and foremost, as Sean just mentioned, and we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, always be thinking evacuation. The more time you spend doing cool guy stuff, the longer it's going to take to get the patient out. That also really applies to the incoming rescue teams as well. Be ready to act. For some reason, in rescue, in wilderness rescue, there's always downtime. There's always time spent waiting on something else. Uh, be ready to go. Don't don't lose sight of the fact that the number one objective is to extricate the patient from the situation they're in and get them to a place that can provide them better care. Always have backup plans. I have never been in a rescue that has gone foolproof. There's always something that goes wrong. The basket isn't right. The wheel doesn't fit. The Whatever the case may be. Have plans, have plans to take care of your patient, have the equipment to take care of your patient, have the equipment to keep your patient warm and dry if it turns out something doesn't go right and you're going to be out there longer than you expected. Plan early, plan often. This also comes back to having a rescue coordinator. If there is somebody else taking the cognitive load on how to get out of there and making plans to get out of there and handle all of the resources to get the patient out of there, you're in a much better place. 
to a certain extent, I think Sean and I harp on this a little bit because we work in an environment that is it's some of the more interesting terrain that I've ever worked in to extricate patients from. But you have to have a plan. The minute you have a plan, have a second plan, because sometimes plans don't go as you had expected. Uh, all it takes is one additional rescuer to turn their ankle, and you just had a much more complex environment. Be thinking about that if you're the rescue leader. Be thinking about that if you're one of the lead people on the team. Hey, what happens if Timmy goes down? I've been on over a dozen rescues where a rescuer got hurt in the process of rescuing. We've actually changed SOPs in the time that Sean and I have been doing this from extricating people from certain environments in the dark and making the decision that it is safer and better to simply stay with the patient overnight and do it in daylight because it's simply too dangerous to navigate some of the train in the dark with 20 people by headlamp with an injured patient. You know, these are all considerations. Pre planning, not just on the scene, but pre-planning and thinking about these things when you're not on a rescue can save you a lot of time, energy, and effort during the evacuation. And never forget, you have a patient, right? They're having one of the worst days of their life. Uh, as I always say when I'm, when I'm providing training and education to new providers, this person has had an event in their life that is of a scale for them that they feel they cannot manage it on their own, so they called 911. If somebody's in the backcountry and they've called for you, they feel like they're having a pretty bad day. Whatever their plan was for that day, I guarantee it did not include getting carried for 12 hours in a metal basket down a trail by a bunch of strangers. So keep that in mind. Uh, keep your patient in mind. Talk to your patient. Be, be kind to your patient. Be uh, consoling for your patient. And just be professional. It's, it's really important. Sean, any final thoughts? Uh, no, sir. I think we've covered it all. You've, uh, I know this was a topic you were pretty passionate about and one you definitely wanted to talk about, and I think you've done a good job covering all the, uh, the fundamentals with it. All right. Well, thank you, sir. So I guess with that, we'll be back uh, with another episode on pain management and pain management strategies coming up. If you, as always, if you have any questions or comments or there's something you'd like us to cover on the show, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com. Hit us up on social media, Facebook, the Instagrams, uh, we're there as well. You can reach out through those mediums. And with that, this is Mike and Sean signing off. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.